At Van City Church, which is where you are now, to be clear, uh, our vision or our hope, our ideal, our dream, the thing that we're after is to practice the way of Jesus together, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus as a result of being with Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did and does. So consequently, we're working our way through Jesus' most famous and essential collection of teachings, what is often called the Sermon on the Mount. Let's begin by reading the text, Matthew chapter 5, uh, where we left off last week, beginning in verse 21. You guys ready? Yep, all right, let's do it. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so... Jesus, first things first, tonight, do not murder. Done, right? For, I hope so, for most of us, yeah. Done. For a great many of us, I think uh, such a teaching is not terribly provocative, do not murder. In fact, though human history is obviously replete with unfathomable violence, it has yet cast a collective frown on the concept of murder, at least philosophically, or at least most of the time, philosophically. But this is Jesus of Nazareth we're talking about, so he does go on. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, yes. But I tell you, Jesus says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus, ever the provocateur, forces his audience to eye one another uncomfortably then, and I assume still now, two millennia later, and ask, can Jesus actually mean the things that he says? But we're obviously getting ahead of ourselves, so let's begin by situating this text within its proper context. Last week, Jesus set the stage for what's ahead by establishing his position on the Bible itself. If you weren't here, go back and listen to the podcast. It's going to come up again and again throughout the next few weeks. But for our purposes tonight, here's a brief synopsis. Jesus of Nazareth rejected two views which continue in popularity today. He did not believe in a literal, simplistic, letter-of-the-law reading of the Scriptures— nor did he advocate that the scriptures should be diminished or set aside or relaxed in any way. In fact, Jesus claimed that he had come to fulfill the scriptures by continuing in the direction to which the Old Testament could only begin to point. Meaning, the legal codes of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, were not God's total revealed vision for humanity. They merely acted as a signpost pointing forward to what it would mean to truly know and love God in full, to be his people and to collaborate with him as his image bearer. So, if the Old Testament is a signpost pointing forward, to what does it point exactly? This is what Jesus will begin to detail in the text ahead. So having described his intention to fulfill the Old Testament law, Jesus will next go on to detail six examples of how such a feat is accomplished. 
And there's an interesting tension at work here. Jesus has just warned his disciples that if they hope to enjoy God's kingdom, which is God's goodness and God's kingship, his rule and reign, breaking into the world as they know it right then, right there, then they'll have to do better than the straightforward rule-keeping of the religious leaders of the day. At first glance, this might come as some relief, right? No one in Jesus' day had more concern for the rigorously consistent obedience to the very letter of the law so if you're thinking, oh, well, we don't have to be like them, well, that's, that's a relief. That sounds like great news. And yet, as Jesus continues with the examples that follow, we'll see that his concern is for understanding and adapting God's heart. This is what Bible scholars uh, describe as the greater righteousness, as it has less to do with legal code and more to do with actually becoming like God. And Jesus utilizes the following six paradigms to unpack such a feat. He begins with murder, where we're at tonight, and then he goes on to adultery, divorce, oaths, violence, and loving your enemies. And to describe what follows as challenging and provocative and convicting and beautiful are all massive understatements. The plan for the next few weeks is to take on each of these topics one at a time, and things are going to get crazy in the process. I hope each of us at some point will squirm and become quite uncomfortable. That is, after all, the idea. Tonight is a nice softball, murder and its connection to anger. Are you guys ready? Daniel, ready? Okay, yeah. Let's get ready. Okay, let's return to Matthew chapter 5 and work through the text line by line, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says, once again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, when Jesus tells his audience, you have heard it said, he uses the passive form of a rare verb, erehu, which is used elsewhere in the New Testament to cite scripture or to cite God, divine pronouncements. The phrase, the people long ago, is the Greek word archaos, which literally means the ancients. So Jesus is saying, you have heard it said to the people long ago. It's, it's a way of citing the Mosaic law, that is the Old Testament, as it was read in the synagogues uh, around Jesus' time. And remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, so citation of the scriptures, interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures would be somewhat expected from someone in his field. That's a rabbi's job, after all. But Jesus goes on. His first example of something said by God in the Old Testament is the prohibition against murder. Here's just one example lifted directly from Exodus, specifically from the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's simple enough. You shall not murder, which is Exodus 20:13. So Jesus, having cited the Torah, he goes on, but I tell you, and this is really interesting because it forces us to ask the question, what exactly is going on here? Is Jesus disagreeing with the Old Testament? Uh, not at all. Remember last week, Jesus has this sobering warning for anyone who would relax or loosen the scriptures. So we know that's not what he's up to. Jesus intends to elucidate the true meaning of the text, what is often behind the system of legal code in the Old Testament. So it's not the rule, but it is the heart of God that at one point in time inspired certain guidelines for God's broken people. One paraphrase might be something like, you know well that the Torah forbids murder, but I want you to understand why. This is God's greater desire. And in this case, the heart of God is that his people would abstain from even anger against one another. Murder, after all, is an outworking of anger, and God does forbid murder, clearly. But his heart is that we would live in peace, not just draw the line at murder, but flee from even the anger that could become violence. 
Jesus' earliest disciples understood his teaching to be quite serious, as is evidenced throughout the writings of the New Testament. James writes this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So that rather than a reputation for anger, uh, disciples of Jesus are to be recognized by their gentleness. And this theme of gentleness surfaces again and again and again throughout the early church. Uh, this is Ephesians. Paul writes, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Later he'll write, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Man, that really strikes me because it seems as though it's not enough to simply behave gently. Your gentle disposition should be obvious to everyone. This is from Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, But you, Timothy, man of God, Flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And this is really interesting. Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy. He calls him a man of God. And then he says, you should be tough, boisterous, alpha male leader, yell at people. I'm just kidding. He doesn't say that at all. He tells him to pursue gentleness. Even the way in which we discuss our discipleship to Jesus must be carried out with gentleness. This is from 1 Peter. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And then, of course, the words from our teacher and master himself, Take my yoke, and that uh, term, my yoke, is a rabbinic phrase that could mean teaching. Take my set of teachings upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So here's a softball question for you. Which does our culture value and celebrate more, dominant, tough, alpha strength, or gentleness? Do we celebrate the strong and the proud or the gentle and the soft-spoken. In today's culture, it seems that we're kind of living in a unique transitional moment. Uh, we tend to celebrate proud leaders and or victims and nothing else, nothing in between. Victimhood is a praiseworthy identity marker in today's culture, and toughness is our only other option. Gentleness is neither of those things. So I pose this question because I suspect that our misplaced attribution of greatness to those who are not gentle and, and consequently our misunderstanding of gentleness and, and as weakness has convinced us that our anger against one another can be valid or even praiseworthy at times. And this disposition becomes tremendously problematic when we're confronted with Jesus' promise that those who are angry with another person will be subject to the same judgment as the one who murders another person. Yikes. Horrifying. Let's look down. Jesus goes on. Matthew 5, 22. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, there are two Greek words that describe the condition that we think of as anger. One is thumos. It describes like a flare of frustration that comes from uh, stumping. St what, what is the term, by the way? When you say that you hit your toe, is it stub or stump? Stub. Stub? 
Uh, I guess I'm an idiot. Sorry, I thought of stump. Sorry. Uh, really, is the consensus on that across the board? Stub. Always stub. No one has ever said stump, except for me for the last 34 years. What's that? Oh, right, me. I'm in the minority. Jeez, Daniel, what's going on with us tonight? We've got to work this out. We can't be angry. Enough. All right. One word, thumos, describes like a flare of frustration that happens when you stub your toe or something like that. The other, orzuzestai, describes a seething sort of animosity. And that's the word that Jesus employs here. It's an ongoing, brooding, toxic resentment. And in Greek, it's a participle, meaning more literally, the term is something like whoever is being angry or whoever is remaining angry, or in other words, whoever maintains a grudge against someone else. And he goes on. Jesus says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus, so, so nice. It's soft-spoken all the time. Uh, let's look at this a bit closer. Believe it or not, this is even more intense than it seems. The word that Jesus mentions here, raka, is an Aramaic expression of contempt. Some of your Bibles even have a footnote that says something like that. Uh, it's a bit like calling someone stupid, but it's a lot more intense. In fact, some Greek scholars argue that this is a profane word. Um, I won't give you any analogies or anything. The second term that Jesus mentions is you fool. And it's actually not terribly unlike the first. Both were really common, everyday utterances, equally employed, equally severe in measure. So if you were in Jesus' audience, you might have chuckled at the idea of someone being taken to court for use of a very common, very seemingly insignificant insult. And then Jesus hits you with the punchline, and it comes as this shocking jolt. If you think it's absurd to be prosecuted over calling someone dumb, I'm telling you that you are even in danger of the fire of hell for the exact same thing. And that word that most of your Bibles translate as hell is actually Gehenna. And it was a well-known physical, actual physical location outside of Jerusalem, uh, also called the Valley of Hinnom. I saw it out of the window of a bus. The tour guide said, maybe this is hell, you know, as we went by. Um, and Gehenna was a detestable place in first century Jewish thinking. It was infamous as a site in which uh, humans were sacrificed to the pagan god Moloch. Uh, it later become some, became something like a landfill in which the city waste was thrown in and burned. There was stench. It was awful and disgusting. So Gehenna's reputation was so vivid that Jesus often used it as an analogy to describe the final destruction of wicked people where they would be burned up and destroyed once and for all. And this passage in Matthew is one example of, of those times. Meaning Jesus is saying, listen, the kind of anger that compels a person to call a brother or a sister stupid is a very serious crime. In fact, calling a brother or sister fool is so serious, you could end up in Gehenna, the landfill, the city dump, the detestable, disgusting place. That is to say, anger against a brother or sister is very serious to God. Jesus goes on in verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. 
So here Jesus actually employs uh, a comedic level of hyperbole to overmake his point. We think that Jesus delivered this set of teachings in Galilee. So Jesus' audience would typically travel something like 80 miles or so to Jerusalem in order to leave a gift at the altar, as Jesus says in his analogy, which would most likely be a sacrificial animal. So in Jesus' imagined scenario, someone has traveled 80 miles on foot with an animal only to realize just before making their sacrifice that they failed to reconcile an issue of anger with a brother or sister. So, in Jesus' scene, that person sets down the animal, they make a week-long journey back to Galilee, reconcile with the friend, then head all the way back to Jerusalem to make their sacrifice. Later, uh, Paul, this master-level apprentice of Jesus, uses the same kind of hyperbole by saying, do not let the sun go down on your anger. The point is, Eradicating anger with reconciliation is so tremendously important to God that even if it requires outlandishly drastic measures, it must be done, and it must be done quickly. Jesus offers one more scenario. Read verse 25 with me. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, the point here is actually the same as those priors. Uh, those prior. Jesus isn't offering actual legal counsel as to how one best settles legal disputes. He's reinforcing his ethical philosophy that as much as it depends on them, his disciples are never to leave fractured relationships unresolved. And of course, you'll notice that Jesus indeed places the onus of responsibility on his disciples without commenting on the attitude of the secondary party in any given dispute. Paul, a prominent disciple of Jesus, expands on this idea later in the New Testament saying this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Meaning, obviously reconciliation is primarily a two-way street. We know this. But the disciple of Jesus is to take all necessary action in accomplishing reconciliation. Though there are instances in which the secondary party may refuse to participate, as much as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Now, before we end tonight, I realize that the application of this teaching is fairly evident without me unpacking it in vivid detail. Disciples of Jesus ought not to be angry with one another, and we ought to reconcile disputes with an immediate sense of urgency. If you missed it, spoiler alert, that's the idea of the whole thing. But I do think we need to have a brief conversation about the seriousness with, with which Jesus regards this topic because I realize virtually no one in this room, and it's, it's, it's okay, uh, we, we can't seem to convince ourselves that anger and murder are in any way comparable whatsoever. And one reason is, I suspect anyway, that most of us have little trouble abstaining from murder, right? And yet every one of us readily engages in anger with a brother or sister, probably on a semi-regular basis. Maybe you less so than me because you're more sanctified. Um, many of us actually celebrate anger. We've come to associate anger with powerful leadership or a sense of righteous indignation or even godly like discipline or emotional health. Uh, we think of all of these things as synonyms or at least comparable connected to ongoing angry disposition. 
because our political leaders are angry, our celebrities are angry, our noteworthy CEOs and creative innovators are all angry. You know, you've seen the Steve Jobs movie, he seemed like he was kind of angry. Famous pastors are angry, they're always screaming, you know, it gets their videos circulated on the internet. They shout, they get stern, they get things done. Wow, this guy takes no nonsense, that type of thing. And, and then you start to think, man, what in the world were all these New Testament authors on about? Be gentle, be gentle, be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And it does beg some really interesting questions. Wait, doesn't God the Father get angry? Uh, doesn't Jesus himself get angry? And scholars debate the exact way in which we should understand God's anger. And at any rate, we're not God, just to be clear. And Jesus is said to experience indignation. We told one of those stories just a couple of weeks ago about Jesus' frustration with leprosy. Um, he even goes on in the story to go ham on some clowns who turn the temple into a marketplace. It's really weird. Uh, but Jesus is never described as harboring anger against a brother or sister. So regardless of the way in which you parse out the complicated concept of God's anger or Jesus' approach to evil and injustice, all of us must wrestle with these very stark words from Jesus himself. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And why does this matter deeply to God? Because God's desire has always been that his people would live in right relationships, right relationships with him, with one another, and with all of creation. For this very purpose, you were created. The Bible calls this concept shalom. And anger between brothers and sisters is a disruption of God's shalom. Those of us who are disciples of Jesus need to understand the great severity of such a thing. Honestly, this is something that I'm quite poor at. I feel very foolish up here delivering this uh, teaching to you guys. Um, the school of like thought and art and philosophy in which I found a home at a very early age is something called punk rock. It has a set of values largely associated with anger against the status quo. And this can be a very good thing. I am angry with the brokenness of, of the world, in the world. I am angry with sin, mo most of all my own. I am angry with suffering and evil and death. But that anger often seethes and it boils over and it spills out onto people who bear God's image. Earlier this week, I was telling my wife, Abby, about the research I was doing for this teaching and like, oh, I stumbled upon this interesting thing and this interesting thing. And she said, in a very gracious way, man, you should really take a moment to think of how angry you get with people who love social media. And she's right. I, I often seamlessly transition my anger against, you know, the soul-sucking pretense of things like Instagram to the people that are on Instagram. Uh, just recently, uh, our little girl Isla turned one, so we took her to Pips. Michael, you were there, um, to get donuts. It was lovely, great time. And this, <laughs> they're not here, so it's fine. I'll tell their story. This couple was in there with their little girl as well. I'm sure having a great family time. 
And I watched as like the mom moved the daughter over to a different table when it opened up. It's a crowded place. And the dad comes in with the donuts. He can't find where they're at. And he finally is like, oh, what are you doing? Why are you over here? She's like, the lighting was better. And I want her to get some good Instagram shots of this. So she has this girl standing there with her donut. And she's, this girl just wants so badly to eat the donut. She's like, no, 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 hold on. Hold it like this. Now hold it like this. And I was going, I'm so mad. I can't eat. I can't eat with this crap going on. And Abby was like, calm down. Just eat the donuts. You'll be fine. And we go outside, and there's like all these people standing outside. They brought their donuts into the alley so that they can pose with the donuts in the alley. I'm like, just eat the donuts. Don't take pictures of them. Oh, it was so frustrating. And then I started doing this thing recently that she's uh, convicted me about on numerous occasions where when I see people walk, walking down the street like this, I actually yell, get off your phone, like that. And she's like, you need to calm down. And then she said, what if they're from church? You know, like, I was like, oh, my gosh, you're right. Um, the point is, these are not good things that I'm telling you about. That, this is anger that I think is like justified and rooted in some like, you know, misplaced sense of self-righteousness that I have. I'm better. I know better. And it immediately spills out onto people. You're dumb. You don't know as much as me. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Um, I have to deal with these words from Jesus, even in something that seems like funny or it seems in, like justified to me in the moment. Do not be angry with a brother or sister in your heart. That's just some stranger that I see on the street, let alone someone who has wronged me on a deep personal level. So to do this, to, to get rid of anger to, anger, to purge anger once and for all, I will suggest two ways forward for this evening before we end. First is I honestly think we need better role models. Um, and now I, I will absolutely agree that God uses flawed people, absolutely. God can use angry people to do amazing things. Certainly there are people who don't even follow Jesus and are angry and they've done awesome things. But I would argue that the disciple of Jesus ought to give up their admiration of the angry leader archetype. Uh, for us, anger should never be a synonym for strength, uh, for leadership, or for greatness. We need to seek out gentle examples and learn from them. So I would invite you guys uh, and myself to think of who do you know in your life that has gentleness that is evident to all, and how can you be like them? Uh, one of my great heroes for most of my life has been a gentleman named Jim Henson. He's this incredibly imaginative artist and pioneer. In fact, my son Beck, his full name is Beck Henson Porter, after Jim Henson. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, we took the family up to Seattle to visit this fascinating Jim Henson exhibition that they have at the Museum of Pop Culture that's currently on display. Uh, here's a picture of Beck um, learning from his namesake. You can see him. He's very tiny on the ground there. It's like, he's not that big in real life, Jim Henson. I presume I didn't meet him. Um, and uh, I named my kid after this guy in part because I just liked the stuff that he made. Uh, he inspired me, you know, for most of my life. But one reason, honestly, one greater reason is that Jim's reputation is one of gentleness, which I think is so unique in all the world. In fact, uh, Jim's longtime agent said this of his life. Jim inspired people to be better than they thought they could be, more creative, more daring, more outrageous, and ultimately more successful, and he did it all without raising his voice. I want Beck, my son, to grow up admiring gentleness. I want him to be inspired by the humble, not the boisterous, not the prideful, not the angry. These things I want him to lament, both in himself, in me, and in the world around him. A friend of mine, uh, also named Jim, but not this Jim, uh, is an elder at Bridgetown Church, the church that planted us just across the river. In the years that I've known this guy, 
I've always described Jim as the archetype of gentle, soft-spoken and kind. He's a wise, older gentleman. He's a retired firefighter. And though I'm sure he's been guilty of anger in his life, his reputation of gentleness precedes him everywhere he goes. He does not lead with aggression or intensity, and yet he does lead with authority. He shepherds the church that he's a part of alongside its team of elders with such compassion and such grace. And people say, oh, Jim is so kind, so gentle. Gentleness is not a weakness. Gentleness is strength for the disciple of Jesus. And finally, the second way forward for us tonight is an obvious one, to be reconciled to those with whom we are angry. For some of you, I think this probably means a phone call uh, tonight, actually here before you leave. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Or maybe it just involves like planning coffee this week or sitting down with someone. Maybe there's apologizing that needs to happen on your part and repenting. Uh, Maybe it's simply releasing the other person in forgiveness uh, personally in your heart. Maybe some of you, um, the idea of full reconciliation is an impossibility. Maybe the other person is unwilling, or maybe they're no longer accessible. They're not in your life anymore. You don't have access to them. And then you have to ask yourself the question, have you forgiven them? Not just, I'm not actively mad all the time anymore, but have you actually forgiven them? Is there even a trace of anger that lingers in your heart at the thought of this person? Are you able to bless them? Are you able to pray for them, pray that they would be blessed and have Um, they they would have human thriving and flourishing the way God designed for them to have. It does not matter if the anger that you have is justified. Uh, Jesus invites you to release them in forgiveness and to love them even so. And I'm sure you've heard that old proverb about, you know, not forgiving someone is is almost like a poison that you drink so that you can hurt the other person. It's, It's quite foolish and it doesn't work. So if that's you, tonight I think is the time to release person in forgiveness to harbor anger no more. Um, I believe that to enter into the work of forgiveness is more fruitfully done in community with the family of God. So in a moment, I'm going to ask the Spirit to bring to mind anyone to whom we maintain any level of anger or resentment. And then I'm going to invite you to make your way here tonight to someone on the prayer team uh, or if someone in your communities that you trust is nearby, you can go to them so that you can pray together and repent together. I think it would be one thing for us all sitting around in a room and say, yeah, we follow Jesus. We want to practice the way of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Actually do the stuff he did. Oh, dang, he actually wants us to reconcile people. I'll get to it, I promise. I'll get to it later. I'll get to it after I leave. So I'm going to invite you guys to actually consider that uh, tonight. Um, If that person is here in the building, I'm going to invite you to make your way to them and talk, uh, not to justify or say why you're angry or to hurt them or to let them know exactly how they wronged you, but to simply to release them in forgiveness and be reconciled to them. If we follow this teacher, Jesus, and if we believe he is good, that his teaching and his way of life are good, then I think we should come and practice the way of Jesus together. So with that in mind, let's pray and I'll invite the Spirit to come and speak.